1: So the cops are getting all of the attention and also most of the heat these past few years in the conversation about what is not working in the American criminal justice system. But the police officer who arrests a suspect actually hands that suspect off quite quickly to another law enforcement officer, and that is the district attorney, the DA, the prosecutor, whose job is not to be that suspect's friend, but to put him or her away if the crime and the evidence call for it. In the movies, the prosecutor is usually portrayed as the hero we want locking up corrupt politicians and mob leaders, and that's why they have the powers they do. But what if those powers and how they're being used are also part of what's wrong with the criminal justice system, and do those powers need to be reined in? Well, that sounds like the makings of a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement. U.S. prosecutors have too much power. That is our debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. We are in Chicago in partnership with the Northwestern Pritzker School of Law as part of the Newt and Joe Minow debate series with four superbly qualified debaters who will argue for and against this motion. U.S. prosecutors have too much power. As always, our debate will go in three rounds and then our live audience here in Chicago will vote to choose the winner, and only one side wins. Our motion again. U.S. prosecutors have too much power. Let's meet the team arguing for the motion. Please welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Paul Butler. <laughs> Paul Butler, you are a professor at Georgetown Law. You are a former federal prosecutor. You are in the Department of Justice's public integrity section. You wrote a book called Let's Get Free, a hip-hop theory of justice. And in the first pages of that book... You write about the events that led to your becoming a self-described recovering
2: prosecutor. What happened? I was part of a team prosecuting the biggest case in the Justice Department. We were going after a United States senator for public corruption. While I was working on that case, I got arrested and prosecuted for a crime I didn't commit. If you want to find out what happened in my case, buy my book.
1: (laughs) I think that's a justified advertisement. (laughs)
2: And Paul Butler, who is your partner? My partner is my friend, the rock star among judges, Nancy Gertner. Ladies and gentlemen, Nancy Gertner.
1: (laughs) Nancy Gertner, welcome. You're also arguing for the motion that U.S. prosecutors have too much power. You are a former U.S. federal judge. You're now a senior lecturer at Harvard Law. Uh, Years ago, you were giving a talk at Yale Law School, and you were asked, uh, what does it take to become a judge? Your answer was, to become a judge, try representing the first lesbian, feminist, radical, anti-Vietnam War activist accused of killing a police officer and taking every abortion case in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and speaking out on every hot-button legal issue of the day. (laughs) So is is that a workable strategy?
3: (laughs) Well, it worked. You actually forgot the last part. It was also the final coup de grace was marrying the legal director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts, (laughs) and you became a judge.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, Nancy Gertner and the team arguing for the motion. So we have two debaters arguing against the motion that U.S. prosecutors have too much power. First, David Hoffman. David, you are a former inspector general for the city of Chicago. You are also a former federal prosecutor. You have led investigations and prosecutions that involve fraud, civil rights violations, gangs, weapons trafficking. Now uh, you're a partner at Sidley Austin doing corporate criminal defense. And so my question is, wouldn't it be
0: more in your self-interest to be on that side of the, of the table? You know, I'm looking out at some of my partners at Sidley here tonight, and I think they're thinking the same thing. Uh <laughs> But, but that's <laughs> different than the argument we're going to make tonight. Who is your partner? Full partner, name. Tonight is my friend and former colleague in the U.S. Attorney's Office, Reed Shar. Ladies and gentlemen, Reed Char.
1: You are also arguing against the motion that U.S. prosecutors have too much power. You are a partner at Jenner and Block. You co chair the white collar defense and investigations practice. But prior to that, you were the lead prosecutor. In both corruption trials of a former governor named Rod Blagojevich, if you had left the U.S. Attorney's Office sooner and had been running the former governor's defense instead, would you have won for him?
4: No. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, uh, the evidence of that case uh, was pretty overwhelming, including the, the governor's own voice on, on wiretaps. And... Uh, would do deference. The uh, the prosecutors in those cases were actually quite good as well. All right. Well, we got a lot
1: to go ahead, but let's welcome again and thank both teams. The team for and against the motion. U.S. prosecutors have too much power. We are moving into round one. Opening statements by each debater in turn. First, in support of the motion. U.S. prosecutors have too much power. Let's welcome to the lectern Nancy Gertner, a senior lecturer at Harvard Law and former U.S. federal judge. Ladies and gentlemen, Nancy Gertner.
3: the stage. Mr. Alvarez, or who is Hispanic, or Mr. Hargrove, who is black, is before me. I'm taking a plea. Uh, he's pleading guilty to distributing a quantity of drugs for which he's going to get a five-year mandatory minimum. I lean over and I say, uh, sir, has anyone coerced you into pleading guilty? Oh, no, your honor, he says. I know that that's not true. The prosecutor said to him, if you don't plead guilty to this one count, I'll charge you with three. It'll be a 15-year mandatory minimum. The prosecutor might say, plead now, or the deal is going to change. It's like dealing with liberty as if it were a sale at Macy's. You won't know much about the case against you. Prosecutor's supposed to disclose evidence that is exonerating, evidence that is exculpating, but too often the rush to plead guilty means you don't get that information. Nevertheless, I turn to Mr. Alvarez or Mr. Hargrove, and I say, I accept the plea. I didn't sentence him. The prosecutor sentenced him. The prosecutor was the judge, jury, and executioner. And it's not just Messrs. Alvarez and Hargrove. It's Aaron Schwartz, the 26-year-old Internet prodigy, uh, accused of computer fraud for downloading scholarly articles off of the organization called JSTOR. He was offered a six-month sentence if he pled guilty, or seven years if he went to trial and he committed suicide. Or it's Kevin Ring who was prosecuted for a lobbying scandal. After trial, the prosecutor recommended 17 to 22 years when Jack Abramowitz, who was the head of the scandal, was offered four on a plea. 90% of federal trials plead guilty, 95% of state trials. Now, who cares, you might say. They all plead guilty. After all, they're probably guilty. There were 1,576 exonerations in the United States since 1989. Ten percent of them were pleas. It's not just mandatory minimums. It's vague statutes, vague laws that enable prosecutors to pick the person and then the crime. Harvey Silverglake calls it three felonies a day or there are multiple counts for a single incident vastly increasing the possibility that you'll get a, an extraordinary sentence. Surely there are wonderful prosecutors there on this stage today. They'll say they're doing God's work. Trust us, they will say, not those judges. It's interesting, you always talk about good prosecutors and bad judges, but judges can be appealed, reviewed, bound by precedent. My colleagues on this stage will talk about the fabulous decisions that they have made. But the issue is not the rogue prosecutor. It's the endemic risk of power misapplied. It is about transparency. It is about mass incarcerations, which prosecutorial decisions are largely responsible. It is about coercion. Sadly, it is also about race. U.S. prosecutors have much too much power. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Nancy Gertner. And that is our motion. U.S. prosecutors have too much power. And here to make his opening statement against this motion, David Hoffman. He's a partner at Sidley Austin. He is a former inspector general and federal prosecutor. Ladies and gentlemen, David Hoffman.
0: Thank you very much. Um, The people who benefit the most from strong, effective prosecutorial power are those with the least power and resources in our society. Prosecutors and strong prosecutorial offices are an antidote against the most powerful. And therefore, this issue is in fact a social justice issue. Prosecutors in our society have a duty, have a duty to use the powers that are appropriate and that are strong to minimize the harm from crime on those who are the least powerful. And I'm going to talk briefly in this opening statement about public corruption crimes and about gang and gun violence crimes topics that in Chicago we have a great deal of experience with unfortunately how do you stop how do you stop a secret effort by the most powerful public officials to hand out public goods to the politically powerful so they can maintain office what it requires is a strong independent prosecutor's office to investigate and prove the crime beyond a reasonable doubt, to a 12-person jury, where the crime itself was usually kept hidden in sophisticated ways by sophisticated people. And the key tools in that regard are wiretaps, flipping cooperators, getting people on the inside to cooperate, one of the most difficult things to do in law enforcement. The dynamic with gangs and gun violence in Chicago was similar, and we know this from the horrific news stories we read too often In the early 2000s, when I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office, we paired up with local police and prosecutors to apply our prosecutorial resources where there were the most dead bodies. Not just to make cases, but to try to lower the murder rate by making cases. Our methods of making cases against gang leaders and those who were the most violent gang members were very similar to to what happens in the public corruption or organized crime context. Try to use wiretaps whenever you can, try to flip people on the inside when you can get them to flip, and and conduct a secret and and confidential investigation using the grand jury. We knew we had to be successful at stopping gang leaders in order to make change, but we also knew you cannot prosecute your way out of this problem. And so we used strong federal gun laws not just to make some cases, but also to persuade those most likely to pick up a gun in a high-crime neighborhood that they shouldn't do so. There are two police districts, one in Englewood on the south side, one in, on the west side that I want to talk about, and then there's a police district north of here on the lakefront. All those have 100,000 people in them. In the year before we started this in 2001, 62 people were killed in the Englewood district, 70 on the west side, and five on the lakefront. The racial breakup of those uh, districts, 98% and 92% black in the districts where there were the most murders, and 74% white in the relatively safe one. Three years later, after the program, the murder rate had been cut in half. So if you just look at those two districts, that's 70 additional people who were alive because the homicide rate had lowered. Let's have some seats for those people here tonight. Let's put the people who were alive because of strong prosecutorial action that has lowered homicide rates in this room.
1: David Hoffman, I'm sorry, your time is up. Appreciate it.
0: I'm John Donvan. Round one
1: of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate continues... In just a moment. And a reminder of what's going on, we're halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared US debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this motion, US prosecutors have too much power. You've heard the first two opening statements, and now on to the third. Debating for the motion, US prosecutors have too much power. I want to welcome Paul Butler, a professor at Georgetown Law and former federal prosecutor. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul Butler.
2: My name is Paul Butler, and I represent the United States. That's how I used to start my opening argument. I represented the government in criminal court in the District of Columbia, and I used that power to put black people in prison, and Latino people, and poor people. What I learned is that prosecutors have turned our great nation into the world's leading jailer. We have 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's inmates. If you're a black man without a high school degree... You're more likely to be in prison than you are to have a job. Imagine the impact of all these prosecutions on black families. It's not just the guy doing time on the inside, but we have a lot of people in our community, women and children especially, who are doing time on the outside. I speak from whence I know. I became a prosecutor because I don't like bullies. I stopped being a prosecutor because I don't like bullies. My... My power to be a bully came from a Supreme Court case called Burden versus v. Hayes. Mr. Hayes wrote a bad check for $88. The prosecutor said, I'll ask the judge to give you five years if you save us the trouble of going to trial. If you don't take this deal and lose, and you lose the trial, we're going to ask for life. Mr. Hayes went to trial, lost, and he got life, a life sentence for writing a bad check for $88. The Supreme Court said, it's all good. That, my friends, is why 97% of people who are prosecuted today end up pleading guilty. Lawyers, including me, were competitive, were ambitious. The incentives to move up in a prosecutor's office are to lock up as many people as you can for as long as you can. And frankly, because prosecutors have so much power, it was easy to do. Uh, One of my cases was against this guy who was a supply clerk at a government office. This guy had a little side hustle where he was selling film that belonged to the government. So we arranged a sting to send in this undercover agent to pretend to be somebody who wanted to buy film. Property clerk says, "I can sell you as much film as you like." Our agent was like, "Well, how much? Can you do 500? Yeah. Uh, 1,000? Yeah. 5,000? Yeah." Every time the clerk said yes, his sentence went up by years and years. Uh, when, When the clerk had agreed to sell the amount of film that would put send him to jail for about 20 years. Someone said, okay, let's put that dumbass out of his misery. Now, as a prosecutor, I have this guy under my thumb. I don't have to charge him with a crime. No judge can make me. Or I can throw the book at him. Or I can charge him with a misdemeanor. It's my decision whether he's looking at probation or 20 years. And I'm making that decision in the privacy of my office. I don't have to explain to anybody what I'm doing. So I asked the dude, what can you do for me? Who can you snitch on? You scratch my back, I scratch yours. Prosecutors use this power to go after people like Eric Garner in Staten Island for selling a single tobacco cigarette. People like Michael Brown, he was stopped by the police for walking in the street. They prosecute that case. And and how do federal prosecutors like Reed and David use this power? Uh, David said it's an antidote to the powerful, but about 50% of the people his office prosecute who go to jail, they go to jail for drug crimes. Why that, and why has no one gone to jail for the financial crisis? Those are the real criminals. So when David comes forward, when Reed comes forward, I want to know whether there are too many black and Latino people in prison in Chicago. And I want to know if you can guarantee me that nobody's being biased against be because they're African American or Latino. Paul
1: Butler, I'm sorry, your time is up. Thank you very much. Our motion, U.S. prosecutors have too much power, and making his opening statement against the motion, Reed Shar, a partner at Jenner and Block and former federal prosecutor. Ladies and gentlemen, Reed Shar.
4: Let's talk about the checks and balances, significant checks and balances that exist. Throughout the system, from beginning to end, that actually significantly limit what a prosecutor can do and how a case proceeds. Now, let's use it in the context of a hypothetical. Let's take a bank robbery. Bank robbery occurs in Chicago. A person runs into the bank, robs the bank, runs out with money, maybe uses a weapon, is gone. Let's assume the prosecutor and the agent are able to get to a point where they want to charge the case. They think they know who did it. So in the federal system, what do they do? They go to a neutral third party. They go to a magistrate judge. And they say to the judge, here's the evidence I think proves that this person did it uh, by probable cause. That's the standard at the arrest stage. They want an arrest warrant. Neutral magistrate has a decision to make. Either yes, I agree with you, or no, I don't. Sometimes they reject it. Let's assume the magistrate says, okay. Agent goes out, arrests the individual. Now where do we go? We go back in front of the neutral third party, the judge. We're going to debate bond. Does the defendant get bond? Then we go potentially to a probable cause hearing. The judge again must decide is there a probable cause to believe this crime is committed? Of course, it hasn't even been indicted yet, so now we go to the grand jury, a group of people made up of individuals from society who are brought in, who are asked to listen to evidence. So in our case, grand jury returns an indictment. Now we go to the judge's room, to the trial court, where there is a brand-new neutral third party who is going to oversee everything that happens from here on out, whose job is to make sure, much like the prosecutor, that justice is done. Defendants unhappy with discovery, defendants unhappy with the way the prosecutor is acting, defendants unhappy with anything, bring a motion. You've got a judge who will decide that motion. So how will the case resolve itself? Well, typically one of three ways. One, it could be dismissed. That does happen from time to time. Two, the defendant could plead guilty, which means, just so we're clear, the defendant walks into court, raises the right hand to take an oath to tell the truth, and admits that they committed the crime. It is the judge's job to determine whether they are satisfied with that determination. The judge's job to determine whether or not it's voluntary, whether it's knowing. And what happens at trial? The prosecutor must prove to 12 people unanimously that there is proof beyond a reasonable doubt. One juror looks at that case and decides there's a reasonable doubt, there's no conviction. And what happens after the conviction? Then the judge looks at it again, and the judge can decide, I think the jury got it wrong. I'm throwing the case out. Now we go to sentencing. Does the prosecutor from on high say what the sentence is? No, that's not what happens. Prosecutor makes their argument. Now it's the defendant's turn through counsel. And then the judge decides what the sentence is. Then are we done? No, we're still not done. Because now the defendant gets to go to a brand-new courtroom, the appellate court. And the defendant can raise whatever he or she wants. Issues about the trial, issues about the plea, issues about the sentencing, it's all overseen through that check and balance. So if we're going to have a discussion about whether prosecutors have too much power, let's at least frame it within the system that we have today that puts significant checks and balances. And at the end of the evening, what you are going to see is that prosecutors do not have too much power. Thank you. Reed Scharr. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared
1: U.S. debate where our motion is U.S. prosecutors have too much power. Now we move on to round two, and in round two, the debaters address one another directly with questions and challenges, and they also take questions from me and from you, members of our live audience here in Chicago. The motion is this. U.S. prosecutors have too much power. The team arguing for the motion, Nancy Gertner and Paul Butler, have argued that indeed uh, prosecutors perhaps have never been so powerful, and they are arguing back from the reality that there are many people behind bars today, people who never got a trial but had to settle for deals where the district attorney held all of the cards and sometimes often has used his or her power to discriminate against uh, poor black and Latino defendants with no real oversight, they say, and that all of this has been exacerbated by the reality um, and existence of mandatory sentencing and vague laws. The team arguing against the motion that prosecutors do not have too much power, David Hoffman and Reed Shar, they say that the power prosecutors have is justified. It is used to go After the big guys, corrupt politicians, mob leaders, gang leaders who themselves cause injury to society's most vulnerable. They say that leverage is critical and they make the case that there is oversight step by step by step and that there are many checks and balances. And what I want to do is go to the side first arguing against the motion and go to David Hoffman and say that a key A key point of your opponents is that the mandatory minimums themselves are resulting in a plea bargain reality where more than 90% of the people at the federal level and also at state level who are in jail actually didn't go to trial. They ended up pleading because the leverage the prosecutors have is so great that, as Paul Butler said, they have defendants under their thumbs. Just on the point of whether you think that leverage, as they're talking about it, exists, is their portrayal of that situation realistic?
0: It's not accurate, although there certainly is leverage. And, you know, look, mandatory minimums have existed in various forms as long as the nation has existed. And the main reason that there have been so many uh, strong, high mandatory minimums over the last 20, 30 years is a reaction by Congress and legislatures against judges, believing that judges were imposing sentences that were too lenient in some respects. Now, that's a policy issue. And my guess is that we would have a lot of agreement between the four of us on the policy issue of whether drug sentences, mandatory minimums or otherwise, are too strong. But on the issue of uh, leverage and Yeah, the, 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 the aspect of coercion due to that leverage. Well, look, you know, there is a mandatory minimum in the state of Illinois for murder. It's 20 years. There's a mandatory minimum in federal law for buying and selling children. It's 30 years. And there are mandatory minimums for drugs. When you prosecute a public corruption case, you very infrequently have the opportunity to use mandatory minimum sentences because there generally there are no mandatory minimum sentences in federal law for bribery or fraud or other types of crimes that you would often get insiders committing to try to flip them. This, this the office that was described by the other side of. You're trying to flip people to get someone for having one marijuana cigarette is not the office we know. You're trying to flip people to go up the chain, to get the leaders, okay. to get the ones who are most culpable. And the dynamic is you're going to use sentences to try to persuade okay. someone they should cooperate. Let's let
1: Nancy Gertner respond to you.
3: Well, what be, it was true that mandatory minimums came about because of a concern about disparity and some lenient judges and also some judges who were sentencing people too much. But one of the things that an old professor of mine said, which was wonderful, is that discretion is hydraulic. When you take it away from one, it cedes to the other. And so what happened is we've taken away discretion from judges in the mandatory minimum cases and even mandatory guideline period, and then that cedes to the prosecutor. The notion that there's a meaningful oversight by the judge. You couldn't have had a judge who wanted to be more of a meaningful oversight than me, if I didn't feel that power, nobody did. We're going to trade stories of horror stories, and they're going to have trade stories of wonderful, you know, noble prosecutors. The issue is an endemic one an information deficit, the prosecutor has the information, a resource deficit, you can equalize it to a degree, but they are bound to have more, and a law deficit, which is as long as there is mandatory minimums, you're going to wind up with leverage beyond anything that any defendant could possibly well, have.
1: Well, let me go to your opponents. Is, is, there, is there a problem with the, the, an information deficit with the prosecutor knowing more than the defendant?
4: You know, I, I think the answer to that is is largely no, because, when, when, you know, John, when you get to the point of trial, it is incredibly transparent. What happens is there, there are rules that are in place. Any rule is subject to abuse. So we can't have a debate about people who aren't applying the rules or who are abusing the rules. What the rules say, and I can tell you what the office that, that David and I were in, is you turn things over. You just turn them over. Um, and you provide information, you provide witness statements. Now, is there a risk in doing that? Have we had grand jury witnesses shot and killed uh, because information was turned over? Yeah, there's dangers to it. You try to protect things through protective orders, and there are consequences. But the rule of the road is, and should always be applied, that that information is turned over and, and is provided. Now, there is one individual, again, if they are actually guilty, who should know quite a bit of information as well, and that's the defendant. All right. I
1: want to go to Paul Butler and, and, and re- ask you to reflect on on Reed's depiction of the situation as it exists once a defendant actually goes to trial. Know, knowing that you're talking about the plea bargaining is where they don't go to trial, but, but he's making the case that if a defendant gets to trial, then the prosecutor's power has a lot of checks and balances. True or not true? Well,
2: again, if we want to talk about the 3% of cases that go to trial, even there, the prosecutor has so much evidence that he's marshaled in part through the grand jury. So the way the grand jury works is the defense attorney is not in the room. The prosecutor is the legal advisor. She doesn't have to present any evidence about in a sense, all she has to do is make a low-level probable call showing that the guy is guilty, and, and then there's an indictment. There's this process called discovery. In civil cases, you know about depositions, that doesn't happen in criminal cases. You don't even have to tell the defense who your witnesses are until shortly before the trial. So again, it's, she, we're, we're, you're, if you're a defense attorney or a defendant, an accused person, you're outgunned. David Hoffman on grand juries.
0: There's a reason that the grand jury and the confidentiality of the grand jury is in the Bill of Rights. For every case that gets investigated where there's a grand jury number opened in the U.S. Attorney's Office where charges are brought, there are multiple cases where there's no charges brought. So a grand jury is a tool to investigate to figure out what happened and if charges should be brought. Paul is absolutely right that it is a one-sided show in terms of the prosecutor is there and there's no cross-examine of the witnesses. But this is an investigation to determine just whether the process should even be started, whether a charge should be brought. Do we want that to be a public process uh, if no charges are going to be brought? There are myriad people who are thankful that the grand jury process was secret because no charges were brought. And how about The witnesses? It is essential for witnesses to be able to come in and feel comfortable telling the truth for cases that may never get brought or may, where they may never have to testify at trial, that they can know that their testimony is going to be confidential.
1: Nancy Gertner, would would you want the secrecy removed from the process of the grand jury?
3: I think it is de facto removed. Police talk, FBI talks. Virtually every major prosecution in the Boston area, for example, has been in the Boston Globe. Uh,
1: But you didn't answer my question. Would you want it formally removed?
3: Com- well, the pro- formally removed, no. Why? Followed, perhaps. Um, but I think that there ought to be more protections on the grand jury. I think, for example, there ought to be defense participation in the grand jury. I think there ought to be more exchanges of information with respect to that. It is, for many cases, the indictment is the end of the case, Uh, In other words, the indictment to some degree ruins a company, ruins a person. I think we actually should look to that. Ferguson and all the grand jury proceedings that we've seen with respect to Eric Garner, we've understood how distorted the process is and how important it is. And so we should, it seems to me, look again at reconfiguring this.
1: Let's go to some audience questions.
3: Thank you. My name is Karen Daniel. Generally, prosecutors have absolute immunity against getting sued for misconduct that they commit in the course of doing their jobs. Is that an example of prosecutors having too much power, or is absolute immunity a necessary component to prosecutors being able to effectively do their jobs?
1: Let's take it to Reed char first.
4: So it's a... It's a, fa- it's a fantastic question. And there are a number of actual, first of all, obviously, prosecutors are bound by the ethical rules and their license. And there's something called the Hyde Amendment. And there are a variety of other actual uh, statutes that have been passed uh, in the wake of certain things that actually do allow uh, civil cases against prosecutors to go forward. Um, I think the, the difficulty is if you took away a lot of immunity, uh, what would end up happening potentially is that you'd end up with lots and lots of lawsuits against prosecutors by uh, not necessarily uh, people that are correctly found not to be uh, guilty, but people that actually are still in jail. And so it's a difficult balance, but I don't think because of the variety of things that prosecutors are bound by and the ethics rules and the actual other laws that exist that actually do allow lawsuits against prosecutors – um, I, I don't think it's one of an indication of too much prosecutorial power. Paul Butler.
2: So, what prosecutors say to defendants is if you don't want to do the time, don't do the crime. Uh, what I say to prosecutors is um, if you don't want to get sued, follow the law, uh, be ethical. Then you won't have to worry about it.
4: Yeah,
3: <laughs>
4: Richard. Richard. Right. You know, D- David and I are now in civil practice as well, and I can tell you the standard for being sued is not just do the right thing. Um, so there are lots and lots of lawsuits that are filed every day. <laughs> but, but quickly,
2: if you, look, if you look at the numbers, it, 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 it may be a high standard, but if you look at the numbers, prosecutors are almost never disciplined. They're not disciplined by the Department of Justice. Uh, the conservative Judge Kaczynski of the Ninth Circuit has an article in the Georgetown Law Journal where, where he says the Office of Professional Responsibility for prosecutors is a joke.
3: And he calls for uh, actually eliminating prosecutorial absolute immunity, because that's the only place where there at least would be some forum to review what they do.
1: I'm John Donvan. More questions from the audience and the results of tonight's debate still to come on Intelligence Squared U.S. I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator, and we have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing it out over this motion. U.S. prosecutors have too much power. Let's go to some more audience questions. Sir. My name is Bill Strom, and uh, hearing the debate so far, Mr. Butler described a system of uh, plea bargaining in 97% of cases rather than a system of criminal justice. And Mr. Shar then described a system of uh, several checks and balances all the way from the point of arrest to the point of appeal and post-conviction relief. Good um, summary, actually. <laughs> thank you. I'm wondering if the two sides might be able to come together over the proposal that there be checks and balances in a system of plea bargaining, whether a policy mechanism that would make that possible is uh, you know what desirable. I would, what I would prefer, rather than creating a wonderful kumbaya moment in in the middle of a debate that has to be adversarial <laughs> perhaps not would, my point would, would no no but would be whether you, your question could be rephrased to say do we need a major overhaul of the checks and balances or not would, would you be okay with putting the question that way to each side certainly do we need a major overhaul <laughs> of the checks and balances Nancy Uh,
3: Judge Rakoff uh, in the New York Review of Books calls for review of plea bargaining by federal judges, by a federal magistrate who could look at what the charges are. The difficulty of that is an information deficit, which the judge has as well. I mean, I can tell you that cases would be... Uh, I'd have to deal with pleas in front of me, and I knew nothing about the case at all. And after that elaborate plea colloquy, I knew even less. Uh, yes, if we wanted to keep it as a plea bargaining system, we have to do something about mandatory minimums and leverage. We have to do something about the information deficit so that it's a meaningful plea bargain the word bargain is such are, but, a misnomer in the But are those changes
1: are those changes in the prosecutor's power or are those changes in the law?
3: That would have to be changes in the law. So
1: do you want to do an overhaul of the prosecutorial powers?
3: No, we'd have but, but if you change the mandatory minimums you'd be changing the prosecutor's power as well. And if you uh, created a review like a magistrate reviewing the plea bargain, then at least you would ah. have some hope of some meaningful checks and balances. Okay, so that, but well, I would prefer a trial system. Call me crazy. Uh, Let's take I'm a, da- a fair, I'm a judge. You can't possibly interrupt me.
1: David Hoffman. <laughs>
0: But now you have to stop
1: talking, Your Honor.
0: (laughs) David Hoffman. For the reasons we've said, I do think it's unfair to throw the mandatory minimums uh, as a reason why prosecutors have too much power with regard to plea bargaining. And with due respect to judges and magistrate judges, the best person to advocate in front of the prosecutor that a certain plea proposal is unjust is the defense attorney. This is what we do And defense attorneys do all the time when they have the time and resources to review the evidence and to come into the prosecutor's office and say, your case stinks, or this is what's going to happen if we go to trial, so let's bargain in that way. We do need more of that, but the proposal to have a magistrate judge is both unrealistic and not putting the resources where it belongs, which is creating more balance. We have no problem with that. Right up in the corner.
1: Um, I'm Eric Sullivan. I was wondering, I really appreciated the question earlier about the ships passing the night army, especially, um, as, uh, Paul, I think, uh, mentioned that the banks have not been prosecuted pretty much at all. Can you limit the prosecutorial power for some of these low level crimes without impinging on their power to take down some of the bigger guys? Wow, this is a complex question. It's, I think it's an interesting question since the two of you are talking about needing to use those prosecutorial powers to get the big guys, and they've been talking about the little guys are under the thumb of the prosecutors. And so the question is sort of saying, do we need to have a, gra- a graduated system of prosecutorial powers or not? And then I want to come to this side as well.
0: I don't think a gradated system uh, makes sense. Look, of course it's true that while the most important uh, cases that we were making in the office were the ones where you're attempting to go up the chain and make cases against the most powerful uh, members of a, of a criminal enterprise. But of course there are people, especially in the, in the state systems, um, where it's not uh, that kind of situation. It's just people who have been arrested for low-level drug crimes or other crimes where there's just one person. And, you know, I would suggest that one of the key policy issues there regarding the large number of people who are in prison for nonviolent drug offenses, the race of a high percentage of those people, relates to sentencing decision. It's not about the power of prosecutors. It's about whether drug sentences for nonviolent drug offenses are too high. That is not this debate. That is a policy issue that we as a country, should drugs be legalized? Should some drugs be legalized? Should sentences be changed? But people are in prison for, for nonviolent drug offenses, not because of prosecutorial power, but because the sentences across the country, post-1980s, post-crack cocaine. I want to
1: actually come back to the question. Yeah. Be- because, because David did start with the question and move to another area. I want to come back to the question about whether there should be some sort of Consideration given for the power relationship of the defendant in what powers uh, the prosecutor is able to exercise.
2: You know, remember I talked about all the women and children in African American, Latino communities, poor people who are doing time on the outside? It's because prosecutors don't think about that. What's the difference with corporations? Under the federal sentencing guidelines, a a corporation can be investigated and prosecuted just like a person. So, you know, if you think that Volkswagen or BP or Exxon uh, ought to be in jail or have some kind of punishment, that's possible. But check this out. The federal sentencing guidelines say if bringing a prosecution would have have a negative effect on the shareholders or on the employees, the prosecutors don't have to bring the case, even if they think the corporation is guilty. So I think when it comes to that kind of law, what's good enough for Exxon and Volkswagen is good enough for poor people. I think we ought to have the same kind of considerations for them. And real quickly, with regard to the, with with regard to the um, war on drugs, uh, respectfully, David, it's all about race. Now, black people don't use drugs more than anybody else. That usually doesn't surprise folks on the college campus. I hope it doesn't surprise you. So. We're about African-American, according to the National Institute of Health, are about 12% of people who use drugs. 60% of people who are locked up for drug crimes are black. So 12% of people who do the crime, 60% of people who do the time. Cyrus Vance, uh, the DA in New York, he's a brave man. Why? Because he commissioned a study to see whether race was playing a role in his office. And he found at every stage of the process. Uh, race matter. He controlled for the crime. He controlled for prison record. So it, it's not just about the laws or the sentences. It's about the way that prosecutors are exercising their discretion in a race-based
4: way. Richard. Yeah. So, so I, I think we need to understand, you know, th- there was a funeral in the city of Chicago today for a nine-year-old child Who was shot and killed and executed in an alley because his father was wanted in part of a gang dispute. That happened today. And prosecutors have limited resources, particularly Federal prosecutors. And we in the U.S. Attorney's Office when we were had decisions to make. And the decision was: do I want to go to a college campus and see if I can get some users? Or do I want to go down into the areas which, unfortunately, are poorly socioeconomic, tend to be heavily minority, and go after the people who are pulling triggers and executing children and doing things like that sort? Where can I have the greatest impact to try to make a difference in people's lives? And there's a huge drug debate that has to be had. But as a prosecutorial office, I want to save people's lives. And that's where I go. And does that have an unfair impact? On minority communities. At some level, unfortunately, it does because that tends to be, as David pointed out, where a lot of the death is occurring. Doesn't mean that the U.S. Attorney's Office doesn't indict cartels. Guzman El Chapo, who just escaped from another Mexican prison, is under indictment in the city of Chicago based on the U.S. Attorney's Office. It's not as if they don't go after other people as well. But what I want to do is I want to try to save lives with limited resources, and that does have a maybe unfair effect, but hopefully, maybe nine-year-old kids aren't going to be dying as much.
1: And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is U.S. prosecutors have too much power. On to round three, closing statements. Our motion is U.S. prosecutors have too much power. Here making her closing statement, supporting the motion, Nancy Gertner, a senior lecturer at Harvard Law and former U.S. federal judge.
3: Uh, A couple of days ago, I published an op-ed in the Boston Globe that said I was a judge for 17 years. I presided over the sentencing of dozens and hundreds of largely African-American males, and I sentenced 80% of them to sentences which I believe to have been unfair, disproportionate, And unjust. And I described what I plan to do about it, which is really part of why I'm here today. Part of the answer was little Congress in in enacting mandatory minimums that led to that situation. But clearly, part of the answer were prosecutorial discretion that that system enabled. And let me close by describing something that was said just in 2015, a few months ago, by a prosecutor who was responsible for someone spending 30 years on death row. He said, at the time the case was tried, there was evidence that would have cleared this man, Glenn Ford. The easy and convenient argument is that the prosecutors didn't know of such evidence, and thus they're absolved of any responsibility for wrongful conviction. He said, I take no comfort in such an argument. I didn't hide evidence. I just didn't consider the evidence. In 1984, he says, I was 33 years old. I was arrogant, judgmental, narcissistic. To borrow a phrase from Al Pacino, winning became everything. The issue is not the good prosecutor any more than it is the good judge. The issue are the endemic risks of a system that enables prosecutors to say winning is everything. Vote that prosecutors have too much power.
1: Thank you, Nancy Gertner. And that is the motion. U.S. prosecutors have too much power. And here, summarizing his position against the motion, David Hoffman, a partner at Sidley Austin and a
0: former inspector general and federal prosecutor. Thank you. You know, winning is not everything, and that's not what being a prosecutor is about, either in approach or in duty. You know, Paul's written an article and, and has argued that good people do not become prosecutors. I don't know whether I'm a good person, but I became a prosecutor because when I was in law school, I went down to the Woodlawn neighborhood, which was south of Hyde Park to uh, talk to people about whether a community service group should be started. And I heard stories from them about how their neighborhood was better, safer, because the feds had come in and taken away Jeff Ford, one of the leaders of a big gang, and that made them feel better. Parents feel more secure, and they were happy about that. The parents in these neighborhoods who are looking for advantages in raising their children where too many nights they put their children in a bathtub in order to protect them, they are looking for help from prosecutors and the police. And those same parents are, frankly, scared of the police as well. They worry about their sons uh, getting arrested or, or uh, hurt wrongfully by the police. And as prosecutors, we need the powers to go after both. That's what being a prosecutor is. On the same week when I had just had three police officers plead guilty for lying under oath to try to enhance cases on people, I was driving with other police officers on the west side because they wanted to show me around. And they got a call that there had been shots fired, and a pizza delivery man had been shot to death in a van. He's a 35-year-old father of two. They were ready to move to another neighborhood farther south for safety. We should insist on strong, strategic, effective, smart use of prosecutorial power, hold our prosecutors to transparent and accountable judgments on that, but not diminish prosecutorial power. Thank you, David Hoffman.
1: And the resolution, again, U.S. prosecutors have too much power. Here summarizing his position in support of the motion, Paul Butler, a professor at Georgetown Law and former federal prosecutor.
2: David, my argument is good people should not become prosecutors. I know good people are prosecutors, but the tragic reality is that next weekend someone else's child is going to be shot in Chicago, and the weekend after that, somebody else. So what these good people who are prosecutors are doing, it's not working. Uh, The folks in the community, they're not only scared of the bad guys and the cops, they're also scared of the prosecutors. So we have to invest in these communities and those children, and we have to demonstrate that their lives matter to all of us and that we're not just going to focus on them when they messed up. Uh, Justice Clarence Thomas said that when he was a judge in D.C., he used to look out the window of his chambers And see all of these young black men filing into criminal court in chains. And he would think, There but for the grace of God go I. President Obama speaking at the NAACP convention a few years ago, same phrase, There but for the grace of God go I. My friends, the determination of who goes to criminal court in chains should not be so fortuitous. It should not depend so much on race and class. As long as it does, we need to restore the system of checks and balances that the framers intended. We need to stop judging people by the worst thing they ever did. Yes, we need prosecutors, but we don't need them to have superpowers. That's why in the name of democracy, in the name of transparency, in the name of equal justice under the law, please vote yes. Let the whole world know that prosecutors have too much power and that as Americans, we're not going to take it anymore.
1: Thank you, Paul Butler. And that is the motion. U.S. prosecutors have too much power. And here, summarizing his position against the motion, Reed Shar, a partner at Jenner and
4: & Block and also a former federal prosecutor. So I'm going to do something I don't do a lot. I'm going to talk a little bit about the Blagojevich case. Um, what people tend to see from that case is the headlines, the, the, the big issues that came out. What they don't see, and there's no reason they would necessarily see is the years, and it took many years, to build to the point where that case was actually viable. It required wiretaps, very difficult to get, significant oversight on low-level people. It required trying to convince people to cooperate. It required going to trial with all the checks and balances we've talked about against other lower-level people until they were convicted and they chose to cooperate. Countless grand jury subpoenas. It required off-site meetings. Uh, where we met with witnesses outside the purview of the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office so they wouldn't be cited, jeopardizing their own safety or possibly the investigation. It had countless people who lied to us, who told us things that were just inaccurate and sent us off on wild goose chases, sometimes for months, people that refused to cooperate. And at the end, when we were finally, after years and years of using really every prosecutive power we had, able to get up on the wiretaps, able to listen to the governor's calls— Then it required luck as well to add into the mix. It happened to be that there was a presidential election. He was talking about selling the Senate seat, or frankly, one of the worst things, and maybe the worst thing he did, on the phone, shaking down a children's hospital. He was holding up money that was meant for sick children until he got campaign contributions. None of those things would have been uncovered if it hadn't been for all the powers that the U.S. Attorney's Office had. So if we're going to take pros- power away from prosecutors, we need to fully understand, and it's hard to quantify, but we need to fully understand there are going to be some people, maybe people like the governor, maybe people pulling the trigger, that are going to get away with crimes that will never be solved that we can solve now.
1: Thank you, Reid Shar, And that concludes round three of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where the motion is U.S. prosecutors have too much power. Okay, the results are all in now, and the way this works it's the difference between your first and second vote, the difference between the votes that helps, that does determine who our winner is. So look at, let's look at the first vote. On the motion, U.S. prosecutors have too much power. In the first vote, 40% of you agreed. 18% were against it. 42% were undecided. Let's look at the second results now. The team arguing for the motion, U.S. prosecutors have too much power. Their first vote was 40%. Their second vote, 54%. They picked up 14 percentage points, That is the number to beat. The team against the motion, their first vote, 18%. Their second vote, 36%. They picked up 18 percentage points. That means the side against the motion won. The motion, U.S. prosecutors have too much power, has been defeated. Our congratulations to that team, and thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared US debate, presented in partnership with Northwestern Pritzker School of Law's Newt and Joe Minow Debate Series, was held in front of a live audience in Chicago. Dana Wolf is our executive producer. Robert Rosenkrantz is chairman. Taylor Quimby and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. Claire Chang is chief marketing and digital officer. Chris Kamakawa is director of research. And I'm your host, John Donvan. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit iq2us.org. These debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you and with support from the Connor Davis Family Foundation, Van Greenfield, Thomas Campbell Jackson, Christopher W. Johnson Charitable Trust, Ilona Nemeth and Alan Quasha, George L. Orstrom Jr. Foundation, Jerry Orstrom, Dr. Kelly Posner Gerstenhaber, Profit Capital Asset Management, the Rosencrantz Foundation, the Mortimer D. Sackler Foundation, and Daniel H. Stern. From Intelligence Squared U.S., Thank you.